I'm the Lorax, guardian of the forest. I speak for the trees. Oh. Huh? And welcome to the Cinema Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Alex Swan, and today we're going to jump back into the animated world, and we are going to discuss the Lorax. Now, we're going to discuss the 2012 feature film version, not the 1974 TV movie, although the 1974 TV movie is pretty good. It's a little bit shorter and focuses more closely on the story. Now, if you are not aware of what the Lorax is, that's okay. The Lorax was a 1971 children's book published by the Dr. Seuss. Yes, that Theodore Geisel, the Dr. Seuss. So 1971, this book came about, and it was a particularly important book for the time. It is about environmental activism, environmentalism, uh, the dangers of greed, the uh, the personification of wildlife. These are all very important ideas. And we're going to get into some of those ideas, but we're really going to focus on what the movie has to say, which broadens the entire story into a larger narrative. So the book is about a little a young man who finds a recluse in the um in the, the very 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 way polluted area uh, outside of town and pays him to tell him the story and and he tells him the story about how he cut down a bunch of truffle trees and the Lorax was like yo don't cut down my forest and the one sort of was like, ah, don't worry about it. And then the last truffle tree was cut down and the Lorax leaves with a final word that says unless. OK, so that was the book. OK, uh, the larger narrative of the movie is that uh, the boy comes from a town that is closed off from this polluted barren wasteland where the onceler has um, secluded himself and has monetized fresh air. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about all of the aspects of those movies that were blended into the plot of the storybook. So just to give you some background of the movie, so the movie came out in 2012. As I said, it is just uh, just long enough for feature length, and that was adding the elements of the other characters like uh, Ted and Audrey and his family and um, Ted having to go back and forth and the main villain not necessarily being, uh, you know, pollution and logging and all of that environmental stuff that Dr. Seuss was talking about, but also having a particular villain uh, in the form of Mr. O'Hare, who has monetized fresh air. Get it, Mr. O'Hare and air. <laughs> so funny. So that is um, that is where the movie takes us. Now, the movie was directed by Chris Renaud and Kyle Balda, co-directors. And, of course, Dr. Seuss wrote the story, but the screenplay was written by Cinco Paul and Ken Dario. And if you haven't seen the movie, well, it's fun. It's it's quite a, a good lark. Uh, I saw it for the first time uh, at a drive-in with good friend of the pod, uh, Molly Metz. Uh, we went and saw it um, on a lark. 
and it was kind of dopey, but it grew on me. I really do enjoy it. And the uh, cast, the voice cast, is actually really uh, a quite star-studded. So we've got Zac Efron, uh, Ted, who is the main character. He's the boy. And the Onceler, both the older and younger versions, are voiced by Ed Helms. So those are the two main characters from the story. Now, the final character from the story is the Lorax, and the Lorax is voiced incredibly by Danny DeVito. And regardless of Danny DeVito's size (laughs) in real life, uh, honestly, he's a perfect Lorax. He's got such a great voice for this, like, scruffy, uh, mustachioed, tiny little woodland creature that speaks for the trees. And I, I I really love this choice, and I'm so glad he did it. I am so glad he did it. Other amazing voice actors or actors in their own right in this movie. Uh, Betty White plays uh, Grammy Norma, who is familiar with the Onceler, sends Ted out on his journey. Uh, Rob Riggle from... Uh, ton of movies but like he got a start on the daily show uh he plays the villain mr o'hare and some other voice actors uh now this one is funny to me this one's funny to me because uh she hasn't been uh done she hasn't done too much voice acting uh in the past but zach efron's ted love interest his love interest is audrey played by taylor swift she sings a song in this in this movie, and um, it's probably you know a tri- double threat there. She's voice acting, and then she does a, uh, a a a song, you know. But you know, she hasn't done much since. To be honest with you, this movie came out ten years ago, so you know she's been focusing on her music, and and I suppose that's been working out for her, you know. Uh, you know, along with Betty White, as I said, we've got Jenny Slate, who again, uh, SNL, uh, quite, quite a uh, varied acting career. Uh, my favorite character of hers, uh, of course, is um, her character from Parts and Recreation, though Jean Ralphio's sister, and then Nassim Pedrad, another SNL alum, uh, voicing the Onceler's mom. So. When we go to the flashbacks of the Onceler story, when the when the, the you know the art takes us back there, uh, the Onceler's mother is played by Onesim Pedrad, and then there are a ton of other voice actors. Bob Bergen is uh, quite the uh, the voice actor in some of these movies. He kind of just does his thing. The director Chris Renaud plays the forest animals, so like the bears that we see. For example, and then uh, one of my favorite voice cameos is uh, one of the Onceler's family members, Uncle Ub, <laughs> is voiced by Stephen Tobolowski, the uh, <laughs> the great character from Groundhog Day, which has to be on this pod sometime soon. Oh my gosh, the the Groundhog Day is amazing. Anyways. So that is the setup for this movie, and my guest host and I uh, today in this episode, we are going to explore some of the many ways that psychology is touched on in this movie, Uh, because it is a kid's movie. It's a very clear case of psychology content, like Inside Out, like Zootopia, like the ideas are, are, of course, very... Uh, easy to grasp, uh, very simple, not complex, you know, it's approachable. So this is a great film to use, and uh, as you'll find out, we use this in our teaching or have used it in our teaching before. So let's get started with Speaking for the Trees, jumping into the Lorax. My guest host today is Dr. Kirsten Bachman. If you didn't get a chance to hear her previous episode, episode 30, 
on Fifty Shades of Grey. Kirsten is an associate professor of psychology at Valley City State University in rural North Dakota, where she teaches a variety of courses in the psych curriculum. Kirsten, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Alex. I'm so glad to be back and today discussing the film that actually began my foray into exploring how students can make connections uh, from media clips into psychology. Well, I'm happy to have you back on, and that's also an amazing place to start. But before we do jump into that, it's been a long semester, I imagine. How was your fall semester wrapping up? You know, it's been a whirlwind. Um, we are in the midst of a blizzard as we speak, um, but it really seems like a roller coaster ever since you and I met up in uh, Pittsburgh mm -hmm. at ACT. Um, but I do have to share some really exciting news about my students. Okay. Um, one of our students is going to Argentina with me on a study abroad trip in May, and she applied for and received a very selective, prestigious Gilman Scholarship, Dang. Um, which is uh, federally funded, and that's going to fund her entire trip. So that's huge for our yeah. little school, putting us on the map. And that same day that I found that out, um, within an hour, I also found out that I had a proposal accepted to a global studies conference in July in London. Oh, awesome. So I will be traveling there. And last but certainly not least, we have never had Psychi, uh, which your audience probably knows as the International Honor Society in Psychology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but we got permission to charter our very first chapter, and we're super excited to have our induction ceremony coming up. So lots of really cool stuff that students are doing here at VCSU. That's awesome. I remember uh, how proud I was when I got our chapter of Psychi started at Eureka. Um, it was, and, and this was in 2017. So we're still only about five, little, little five-year-old chapter. And it's so thrilling too, because you have to have all of the support from the students without them wanting to join Psychi. You can't get a chapter started. And so it's like this, like really fun, mutual job one. And it's uh, it's so fun. I'm congratulations for all three of those things. Thank you. You bet. You bet. And uh, listener, if if you notice something, I'm a little I'm a little congested. So if I if I sound a little off to you, that's probably the reason. Maybe a little bit more uh, mouth noises too, as I try to both breathe and talk at the same time. <laughs> All right, Kirsten, let's pivot to our discussion, jumping off again from the point that you just made when you when you said hello. So we're talking the Lorax and tell us a little bit more about why you chose the Lorax and why uh, this was, you know, one of the first movies you decided to use to jump in with film pedagogy. Yeah. So as a social psychologist, I found myself my first semester of teaching. In addition to teaching social, I was also teaching motivation and emotion. And I was flipping through channels uh, one Sunday afternoon. And unbeknownst to me, I landed upon an iconic scene, which we'll probably discuss uh, more in this podcast, um, where the Wunzler is speaking, uh, sorry, singing, yeah. how bad can possibly be mm -hmm. um, in the movie The Lorax, which I'm really ashamed, Alex, to admit that I didn't even know was The Lorax at the time. <laughs> um, but you know, you know how we are. We're always thinking about our students. And as I was watching and uh, thinking about the lyrics, they were just hitting me. I was like, oh my goodness, this is perfect for what we're talking about, like motivation, you know, like why, why is the Wunzler doing these things? Um, and I could totally use this in class. And mm -hmm. I had been um, doing all semester at that point, one to two page reflection papers. Um, and, you know, on different kinds of assignments, um, some in class and some for, you know, outside of class homework. And I thought, you know, I think I could use this in class. And then, as I mentioned, I was also teaching psychology of learning. And I thought, hmm, as I watched some more, you know, I was watching like 
some of the characters watch other people do uh, things. And I was like, oh, I bet they could do some learning stuff too. Um, and yeah, mm-hmm. thus began my, you know, hey, this is an extra credit opportunity. And then the following semester, um, my students were like, hey, we want to do that. And then <laughs> I just started using it in a whole bunch of classes. And, you know, it, it went from just a random extra credit opportunity to, wow, like there's really a lot of psychology in this movie. And it's a, I find that it's a great way uh, for students to make those connections that they might not otherwise make. Yeah. And I, I agree with you on that, uh, on that last point, students making the connections that they otherwise wouldn't have made, especially in the art form. And and I said at the top of the show uh, to the listeners that, it's an animated movie, and so a lot of it is going to be simple and straightforward. There's not going to be a lot of obfuscation and like hiding of details and other artsy-fartsy things that adults make for other adults, right? And so it's quite the vehicle for a number of psych principles and concepts that we'll talk about in this episode. And, and I liken it to instructors deciding to use things like Inside Out or Zootopia, which are other animated classics at this point, right? Classics in the sense that, you know, they came out in the last 10 years or so, and yet they're so good for this kind of uh, teaching, for this kind of pedagogy. I really enjoy how, how your students sort of like, sort of lifted your sails in this one, because imagine another universe where Dr. Bachman was using this in her class for an extra credit assignment and they all hated it, right? It helps that the movie is like it is not bad. I don't want to say that it's a good movie. That's a that's a film critic thing from me, but um, it, it, it's an enjoyable movie, right? Songs being sung by somebody, it, by two people who are not only known for their singing, right? Uh, we've got Zac Efron from High School Musical, and then, of course, we have Taylor Swift. But then we have uh, Ed Helms, who sings a bunch in all of the things that he's in, right? So it's imagine just another universe where they were like, nah, we don't want to do that again. You may have never done it again. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, You know, the way that pedagogy works is we are trying new things. And if they stick with our students, then they're more likely to happen again. Um, Great example of positive reinforcement there, right, Alex? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And if not, you know, if it's a punishing kind of situation, then we're liable to, you know, scrap it and say, well, that didn't work and on to the next thing. So you're absolutely right. If it weren't for my students being that excited about it and thinking of it in the sense that, well, yeah, we've seen this, but we weren't looking at it in the lens of a psychologist. Um, I definitely would not have, you know, kept this. I would have scrapped this and we probably wouldn't be recording this podcast right now, to be honest. Yeah, I, we probably wouldn't. Right. Uh, and and I've used this movie uh, in the past in Psych of Learning as well. I thought it I was really trying to rack my brain about what movies to use for learning. I've done a number of different movies uh, in learning just because you can kind of find and I generally tend to spend most of my time on conditioning, both classical and operant in Psych of Learning. So I always look for films that sort of encapsulate that. I've used Clockwork Orange before, which has some really great scenes of aversive conditioning, which is hard to find in movies sometimes. And um, But this was the first one I used. The first time I taught Psych of Learning, the first ever time that I taught Psych of Learning, I, I was like, I'm going to start off with a kid's movie. <laughs> Um, and just so I, you know, I'm not making waves my first year, uh, at Eureka. And so I use this one. I'm like, oh, I'm so glad, like, it's so simple and you can find these concepts really easily. And so the later movies that I've chosen, I've been like, hmm, let me get a little more, uh, obtuse or devious and make them really think critically about the concepts. And so I haven't used it since. 
but it was a, a really good one to use. And 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 because I have kids now and they've watched it as well, I, it's something that I can always refer back to. So I enjoy the longevity this kind of movie um, it has. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, again, you know, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, would I be showing the Lorax, a Dr. Seuss movie in my various psychology classes? I would have said probably not, maybe laughed. Um, but, you know, I have found and you probably have found similarly that students really respond well to open ended assignments within given parameters. Yeah. So what I do is I tend to have a three page paper and sometimes they bog oh, three pages. It sounds like a lot, but they actually seem to have fun with this paper. Um, and what I want and what I tell them in the instructions is that I'm looking for approximately one page per concept. So I'm asking them to pick out three different concepts and yes, they have to be distinct. Um, okay. but I have had students like you probably have um, do like one particular scene talking about positive reinforcement and then yeah. a separate scene talking about, um, you know, positive punishment because yeah. those are distinct, even though they are two different operant conditioning principles, mm -hmm. they are different. And as we know, people often confuse them. Um, and so I do allow that, but I also do encourage students to think a little bit more deeply than that, mm -hmm. especially depending on, you know, the course and the content that we've discussed. Right. Um, but it really gives them an opportunity to display their understanding of some of arguably the most complex and complicated uh, challenging concepts within our field. Um, and they do it in a fun way. So, you know, when I'm grading these papers, one, I enjoy them. Yeah. I always find, as you probably can relate, students are a lot more creative than sometimes I even find myself being, you know, as we're <laughs> going to discuss, there are some iconic scenes that, oh, sure, you know, anybody could pick that out if they were, you know, halfway trying. But sometimes my students are picking out things that I'm like, wow, that's actually an excellent example that I wouldn't have at first guess, you know, thought of myself. Mm -hmm. um, and all these years that I've been teaching and um, utilizing the movie, you know, that that's like a first for me. Um, so I really have fun. The students seem to have fun and they frequently comment about how enjoyable it is for them to, again, take a movie that they've likely seen before but that they are looking at from a new lens. And I mean, if that's not a win as a teacher and in psychology, then I don't know what is. Yeah, of course. And I do a similar paper to you um, across uh, multiple classes. It's usually about the same, uh, although I don't ask them to do a full page per concept because I also don't want them to like ramble on redundancies. But uh, I, I do ask them to go look for uh, the arguments they make. I do ask them to go look for outside sources to support that. So they've got their textbook and then they can go find sources within their textbook that support the ideas that they're talking about. And I think it's uh, one does the job of, you know, having them move beyond their textbook, of course, but it also has them uh, make arguments and then support those with basic facts or basic uh, peer-reviewed sources. And so it's usually about two to three. And I do a very similar thing. They have to get three. They have to, they have to sh tell me three different scenes that show three different course concepts. And this was the first movie that I, uh, I used for that. Uh, so this was my second uh, semester at Eureka College, and it was the first time I was like, I'm not going to test people on these. I'm going to ask them to write a paper. So I'm going to engage their writing and critical thinking skills here. And I think that's a, an important thing to note about uh, a film like this is that even though we've used it in Motivation and Emotion, which is linked to a class like learning, you know, the psych of learning, you can use it in a ton of classes, as you have noted in our our show notes here, Kirsten. Um, so let's go through some of these concepts a little bit more deeply, and then I'm going to pick your brain about some of the other concepts that you've come across um, and we'll kind of just sort of rapid fire them um, later on in the show. How does that sound? That sounds great. Let's get to it. All right. So our first one, as we said, 
We've both used this in a psych of learning class. So for those of you who are uninitiated about learning concepts, I'm going to have Kirsten briefly define uh, some of the operant conditioning language that we're going to use in this episode. Kirsten, go ahead. Sure. So the easiest way that I and my students find to think about the four different types of operant conditioning is that um, you're always thinking about the likelihood of behavior and is it increasing or decreasing? Reinforcement is the likelihood of the future behavior is increasing. Punishment, mm-hmm. the likelihood of the future behavior is decreasing. Yep. So those are the two primary types. And then we further subdivide into positive and negative. Mm-hmm. And we think very mathematically when we talk about positive and negative in the operant conditioning world. So just like in math, when you see a plus sign, you add. I like it. Positive means that you are adding or applying a new stimulus. Mm -hmm. And negative, just like in math, when you see a a minus sign, you subtract. That means that you're either taking away or removing a stimulus. So when we put those things together, we have positive reinforcement, which is arguably the most common and Mm -hmm. the one that we might be most familiar with, which is the addition of a uh, wanted or pleasant stimulus. Yeah, My generally. students learn that to be an appetitive stimulus. Mm-hmm. And one way to think about and remember that is that when you have an appetite, you want to eat. Yep. Um, so an example would be like you give a child a lollipop because they were nice to their friend at school. Yeah. Or they shared a toy. So that's positive reinforcement. Again, probably one of the easier of the four to understand. And then negative reinforcement is arguably one of the hardest. But again, as long as you remember that reinforcement is increasing the behavior likelihood and negative is taking something away, then the only question you have to ask yourself is what kind of stimulus must you be taking away? And the answer is something that you do not want. Um, Great example of negative reinforcement is why a parent gives in to a crying child or a child that's throwing a temper tantrum um, because they want that temper tantrum to stop. 100%. Um, What I always talk about with my students, though, is that you always think about it from the learner's perspective. So even though from the parent's perspective, they are negatively reinforcing the behavior, they're actually positively reinforcing the child instead of punishing or making whatever they did with the temper tantrum uh, to be less likely. So you got to be careful with that. Yeah. Um, Then when we get to punishment, positive punishment. What's that? Don't I know it. Oh, with, yeah. <laughs> with the tantrums, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, positive punishment. Uh, sometimes students are like, well, how can punishment be positive? But remember, positive <laughs> is giving something. Yeah. Um, so a great example and maybe the hallmark one of positive punishment is spanking a child. Mm-hmm. Um, Any kind of that corporal is punishment, you- really. Any type, yes, any type of corporal punishment or to get to the Lorax, throwing tomatoes at someone is yep. an example of positive punishment um, because you are giving or applying something that the learner does not want, um, in which case it makes it less likely for them to do what they were doing yeah. in the first place. And going back to this iconic scene from the Lorax, what that looks like is, um, you know, trying to sell this need. And in this case, uh, the Wensler is actually playing a song and it actually becomes, you know, quite popular later. Mm-hmm. But initially, nobody wants to hear it. And so they're throwing tomatoes. <laughs> hey, guys. Come on. Where's my backup chorus? What? Um, And then finally, negative punishment is uh, the removal of a pleasant or appetitive stimulus. Um, And so a good example of this would be timeout Mm -hmm. or uh, prison because you are removing the freedom that the person wants. A caveat, though, if a child goes to their room for timeout, you better make sure that it is not filled with toys because then you're actually enforcing their timeout should be in a corner. (laughs) Right? Yes. Yeah. At at least that's how we did it, right? You had to you had to go timeout into a a different room that wasn't their play play place. 
Yeah, it should be boring. It should be because they don't should be, be boring according to the operant conditioning rules, right? Give it yes. up for I wish I had a clapping sound effect. Give it up for Kirsten if you are listening to this. Do a little clap. I don't care if anybody's watching you while you're listening to this podcast in a supermarket. Give it up. That was a great quick rundown. She did that in like four minutes, y'all. Uh, that was fantastic. Uh, so, I mean, there's not really anything else to add to that um, because uh, it, it was super comprehensive. And I'm going to steal the positive and negative plus sign and minus sign when I teach it next year um, when it's back in my rotation. So amazing. Uh, and you're right about negative reinforcement and positive punishment. Uh, negative reinforcement being one of the more difficult uh, concepts of the four and it being uh, confused quite a bit with positive punishment. Uh, and uh, the Big Bang Theory has a great uh, back and forth scene about <laughs> what it is that they're doing and whether it's negative reinforcement or positive punishment. And they get it wrong, Alex, as I'm sure you know. Yes, and they do. And when I teach it, I have my students pick it out. And I'm so proud of them because by the time we've gone through, I mean, that was a crash course, right? Yeah. Um, but by the time we've gone through all of that, they can recognize, no, that is completely the opposite because positive is not negative. You're not adding and subtracting. You're doing one or the other. Right. And you're not increasing and decreasing. So they're actually completely opposite from one another, mm -hmm. despite the fact that people, including Sheldon, who should be, you know, this well, very to be fair, he's a physicist, right? Person. And he's a, yeah, and he's a true, theoretical but, physicist. Know. Yes. <laughs> but I always pause it and I tell my students like, wait a second, do you see what he just did there? And they're like, yeah, and that's not true. And I'm like, exactly, because he's talking about mild electric shocks and um, squirting water, water as negative reinforcement. And they're like, no, 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 that's wrong yeah. because you're mm -hmm. adding. So therefore, it's positive mm -hmm. and it's making the behavior less likely. So therefore, it's punishment. Yeah. So he's actually describing positive punishment, but he calls it negative reinforcement. And then I just do a slow clap because my students are like, you know, they get it. Yeah. And I'm so happy. for Yeah. Them. And so what are some of the what are some of the you mentioned one, the throwing of the tomatoes. Are there any other scenes that stick out in your mind that uh, show uh, what what are called contingencies, these operant contingencies? What uh, what other scenes pop out at you? from the movie yeah oh, speaking of pop out alex one of the earliest scenes when uh the onceler visits um the oh now i might be wrong maybe it's not no it's not the onceler it's the little boy that Tim, i can't think ted. of his name help me ted ted okay sorry um he visits the onceler without realizing um you know at this really old decrepit um yeah. location and it's His scary and there's a boot house. that comes down and kicks him uh -huh. um yeah that's a great example of positive punishment uh -huh. because uh nobody really wants to be literally kicked by a boot <laughs> when they are trying to uh you know stuff. call upon a person <laughs> so um that's one that my students sometimes though not often but mm -hmm. sometimes the more astute students will point that one out as yeah. an example of positive punishment uh, one of the one of the uh, scenes uh, or actually combinations of ideas, maybe not necessarily scenes, is the role of profits and revenue and and uh, within the story. So while the main story focuses on the onceler and how he's cutting down all the truffle trees because he wants to make all this money. He doesn't want to be an F up to his family because they already think he is. So he's making all of this money. And then the, uh, you know, the Lorax is like, bro, stop cutting down all the trees. But he's like, no money. And then that gets mirrored in O'Hare, which is a new part of the story, which was added to the Lorax story, right? To make it, to pad the runtime, right? You have to make a, a larger story, <laughs> right? Because Ted exists in the original book, but the Onceler is the only other character from the, uh, as opposed, and, and, and of course the Lorax, right? Uh, those are the mm -hmm. only three characters in the book. Uh, and so Mr. O'Hare is bottling up fresh air for yes. profits, right? He represents end stage capitalism. 
And it is the villain of the story. Or and slash he is the villain of the story, right? Let's find a commodity that everyone needs and let's make them pay for it. It's literally bo- it's like the next level up to from bottled water, right? Hey, Ted, right? Um, Mr. O'Hare? So, I hear you've become interested in trees. What's that all about? Uh, oh, um, where did you hear that? Oh, <laughs> Teddy, there's not much that goes on in Thneedville that I don't know about. Here's the deal. I make a living selling fresh air to people. Trees, oh, they make it for free. So, when I hear people talking about them, I consider it kind of a threat to my business. I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> you listen to me, boy. Don't go poking around in things you don't understand, or I'll be your worst nightmare. I'm Frankenstein's head on a spider's body! Yeah, um... <clears throat> okay, my mom's expecting me, so I'm just gonna... <laughs> of course, of course. Now, go back to your family game time. Grandma, just finished a turn. How, how did you know? <laughs> Please. I have eyes everywhere. Yeah, and you know, speaking of him, one of the scenes that's coming to mind as you're describing that, um, because we were just talking about negative reinforcement and how it can be hard, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. both for students to understand, but also to find examples of um, when Ted is attempting to get around all of the surveillance features that O'Hare and his henchmen have put together. There's like this cat that has eyes or whatever, and he tries to take it out because he's trying to go outside of town. Yeah. Um, and so when I do discuss negative reinforcement, I also introduce my students to the difference between avoidance and escape. Mm-hmm. And that would be an example of escaping because he does have the unpleasant stimulus of that surveillance, but he is uh, making it more likely that when he encounters more surveillance that he minimizes the exposure. Yeah. Um, and I remember this, you know, like it was yesterday that I could see the, this cat in the beady eyes that like he goes meow, like <laughs> as he's attempting to, you know, die, but actually doesn't because he has, you know, still some life left in him. Yeah. Um, and so again, some of my students will point that out but i also as i am discussing the film and i will show clips sometimes i show the whole thing it just depends on you know where we're at in the different courses that i use it in sure Um, but when i do show it i do try to stop and point out some of the things Mm -hmm. because i want to make sure that students are you know making those connections but for the most part they they're really good at, at getting those themselves yeah which probably would be harder in other movies that show operant conditioning right been an mm-hmm. adult movie that's not focused on learning but of course since the story is in since the story of the film is embedded in the story of dr seuss and he was always trying to teach children something like mm-hmm. the, those concepts are readily available and another another one that uh, a student of mine pulled out is at the end when o'hare gets his comeuppance he is humiliated by the crowd because they find out what a sham he is right what a what a uh, what a grifter he is and so that's a good example of positive punishment because he's getting humiliation and of course (laughs) i don't think anybody enjoys humiliation so that's a good negative that's a good um, excuse me, positive stimulus. Uh-huh. It's negative yeah. in the sense that we don't like it. Um, and yeah, he, of course, that humiliation is going to, uh, once the story's over, of course, he's going to not be in charge of the town anymore, right? Uh, and so, of course, he's going to decrease his behavior of trying to bottle air, bottle fresh air, and, and uh, make money off of that, right? By controlling the narrative if you will some some parallels with our with our life today which is very sad 10 years later um but he's going to try to control that he can't control the narrative anymore so that is um a good example of of um positive punishment yeah and so maybe after the break we can keep uh discussing some things that we might apply to social uh learning because i know there's plenty of examples there 
Yes. So as Kirsten mentioned, uh, I've been trying to make sure that I get these breaks in. So we're going to take a quick break, have a word from my lovely wife about supporting the podcast, and we'll be back with Dr. Kirsten Bachman. Hey friends, Astrid here. You may know me from such films as Crazy Rich Asians, White Oleander, or How to Train Your Dragon. Wait, what was that? I wasn't in those. I wasn't in those. Okay, that wasn't me. Ooh, okay, well. Astrid here. You may know me as the other half of your favorite podcast host, Dr. Alex Swan, and I'm here to shout out listeners like you. Thanks for supporting the pod. Whether that's buying merch, sharing episodes on social media, or making donations, you can visit cinemaslikepod.swansite.com to get your hands on previous episodes, or if you're like me, just another hoodie because we live in the Midwest. We appreciate you. Now, back to the show. And we are back talking The Lorax, the 2012 animated movie with The Lorax uh, voiced by the amazing Danny DeVito. He needs props. We are discussing the film with Dr. Kirsten Bachman. And uh, Kirsten, before the break, we were talking about opera- uh, operational <laughs> operant conditioning. But it, but and and we could go on and on and on Um. Uh. Uh, for days talking about all of the various examples of operant conditioning and learning in that. But of course we've, we've got to pivot of course. So let's, as you mentioned, as you uh, dropped the hint before the break, observational learning or social learning, let's talk about how this is shown in the movie. You get first stab. Yeah. So I can think of at least three different scenes. So we'll start at the beginning um, where there's a disco tree <laughs> and uh, Ted's mom is, you know, yeah. he's talking about trees, whatever. And she's like, Oh, Ted, don't you know, we have this. And so, I mean, had she not seen other people with those fake trees, mm-hmm. then she would not have thought that that was so cool. And he's like, mom, whatever, you know, and she's like, you know, these seasons and then disco. Um, so that's a great example of, you know, that she has learned from other people. And you were talking about O'Hare, right? He has made that an entire part of their society. Um, So that's the first one. When I think about social learning, I love the bears. I think Mm. there are some really cute scenes with the bears. Um, You know, there's one that's a little bit on the chunkier side and he tries to do exactly the same thing as his, you know, very small friends. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are some really funny things that he ends up doing. Um, There's also some uh, scenes where the birds are doing something that bears should not. And I believe they're like putting their beaks uh, down like in the ground. Mm -hmm. And then he tries like the big, you know, plumper bear, uh, tries and he just like you know gets a big headache (laughs) so (laughs) um, you know there's some comedic relief um yeah as you mentioned you know it's a it's a kids movie and you know keeps us laughing but there's definitely you know scenes there with social learning um and then you were starting to talk about before the break about um sort of the very end when you know this whole grift that the um mr o'hare has been putting up Mm -hmm. you know this front yeah um is you know revealed for what it truly is and i mean the whole town now sees that what ted has been trying to show them is real Mm -hmm. and so what they've you know been seeing is a lie um and without them you know seeing what he was doing with you know blazes with the bulldozer and everything you know then um they would not be sort of on his side and you know of course that's the the main message right yeah you know the one the lorax is trying to get across yeah the lorax leaves all the trees down right after the after uh the one slur has cut all the trees down um the final message lorax leaves him because the lorax has to go away there's no more trees um he leaves the word unless. So this is really all your fault. You destroyed everything. Yes. 
And each day since the Lorax left, I've sat here regretting everything I've done. Staring at that word. Unless. And wondering what it meant. But now I'm thinking. Well, maybe you're the reason the Lorax left that word there. Me? Why would he leave that for me? Because unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And we'll talk about unless here uh, at the end of the show. Um, but the Onceler is trying to figure out what the hell unless is supposed to mean after all of the trees have been cut down and the the idea of Ted learning from the Onceler that he let things spiral out of control and he didn't stop himself. And it's a good moment of of learning just in general, uh, observational, maybe, maybe not, but uh, uh, just a good moment in general of like maybe pay attention to what's going on around you because if all of the trees are gone and this was the message that uh, Dr. Seuss was trying to to suggest in the late 60s early 70s and 71 when the book came out was that if you cut down all the trees there's no more producers of oxygen right trees are a civilization's lungs and if you cut those down you are going to end up with out you're going to end up without any air and um it's really it's a really poignant learning uh scene when it all comes together for Ted and um i like i like what you mentioned though Kirsten about uh, um the 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 jig being up uh for o'hare um because he saw an opportunity to make money on a concept and a couple of generations. And of course, boom. It's all a different society and one thing leads to another. Another uh, observational learning scene is when the one slur is talking uh, or really singing about uh, the Thneed becoming popular is when it just happens to land on a woman's head in the town and she's like, huh? But then she really enjoys her new hat. And of course, she must have been an influential person because people look at her and were like, this is an amazing hat. Where can we get more of this? And so they immediately uh, want more of the need. And so one by one, everyone gets obsessed because they see their neighbors, they see their friends, they see their family buying need in, in various ways. And the ones that's like, I am successful now. Of course, that's what the a whole idea about how bad can I be comes from, right? Um, and my students liken that to how uh, children who are exposed to the model in the original Bobo doll study from Albert Bandura. So in this study, a inflatable clown with a weight at the bottom of it was put into a room with other toys. And in one condition, children watched a uh, watched an adult uh, engage with the Bobo doll and in other conditions they watched a model not engage with the Bobo doll or they didn't watch a model at all but specifically in this condition where the children and these children were aged I think five to ten somewhere around in in that age range so not um, too young but also not too old and uh, so they watched these uh, adults bang and uh, violently smash Bobo as, you know, as an adult would do to a clown that isn't one, isn't real, inflatable, and of course has a weight in the bottom of it. That sounds fun. That sounds really fun. 
because he's always going to come back for more. But of course, these children watch these models do that exact thing. And so when they were put into this playroom, they engage in those same kinds of behaviors. And so that's what we mean by this social or observational learning. We see somebody else that we think is a model and we want to behave just like them. So the bears trying to behave like or specifically the bigger bear trying to behave like his bear counterparts or the other animals in the forest. And it's great, great slapstick comedy, as you mentioned, Kirsten. Um, it's so good uh, because and because kids love when people get hurt. My kids are the truest test of that comedy. Um or just the way the Onesler gets all of his money through just happenstance, word of mouth. It's kind of funny, actually. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned that I happen to be, um, I keep wanting to say scrolling, but that's not right. But, you know, uh, surfing through channels and stopped at the how bad can I possibly be scene. Mm-hmm. And students will often point out that um, Lawrence Kohlberg's theory of moral development mm-hmm. applies to that. Um, I don't know how many um, people, instructors uh, highlight that, but I find it really important to, you know, teach students that you've got your um, pre-conventional, conventional, and then post-conventional moral thinking. And um you know, if you're thinking like, well, it's completely bad to uh, make money. Well, that's, you know, maybe a little bit of a limited perspective. Um, so when the Wunzler is singing, like, how bad can I possibly be? His motivation, of course, is to be making money. But then there's, you know, some sort of level of, well, but you got to make sure that you're not, you know, taking away the forest and the Uh trees from everyone at the same time. Um, And so when we get to that post-conventional level of thought and reasoning, we understand that things are not black and white, right? And I don't know about you, but I talk about my students having to be comfortable with gray. And I think that Holberg's uh, theory of moral development is a excellent example of that. Because Uh when you get to that post-conventional thought, you're able to say, well, yeah, stealing is typically wrong. But if you're stealing because it's the last resort to feed your family, then I can understand that, mm-hmm. right? And so I usually use the example of John Q, actually, you know, like, no, you shouldn't be holding up a hospital. But when you are trying to make sure that your child gets the life-saving medical care that they need, maybe I can understand that. Maybe I personally don't think that I would do that, but I don't know until I'm in that situation. And so I think that scene when the Wunzler is singing, how bad can I possibly be? I think that's a great example of getting people to think in that post-conventional reasoning because it's not just black and white, right? Like making money is not wrong. But what is your actual motivation? So I think yeah. there's a lot that's packed into that one scene. Yes, it's a it's a great scene. And what I'll what what we'll do here is go from observational learning to another learning principle that I spend time in in learning classes, and that is the mental health side of learning. And one of the uh, disorders that is that I dis. Uh, specifically discuss in learning. I don't teach our abnormal or psych disorders class, but the one that I focus on in learning uh, is phobias because phobias are a one uh, sort of one and you're locked in classical conditioning kind of uh, one experience. But really, this particular phobia that I'm talking about that is, that's shown in the movie is sort of like a collective phobia. I don't even know if that's a real, a real thing among uh, clini- clinicians and clinical psychology, but it's sort of like a collective fear that everyone has. And we go back to O'Hare on this one, and I got I to gotta give props to my student uh, who came up with this four years ago because it is solid gold. Um, you know, it was, it was, we watched Lorax at the end of the semester so that all of the things that we talked about in the in it, to use at their disposal for the paper. And they came up with this one. So m- massive credit to this student who came up w- with this idea. But O'Hare really is, uh, again, is 
in many ways, the embodiment of a propagandist late stage or end stage capitalist capitalistic society uh, feeding lies and misinformation to the constituents. So most of the residents of Thneedville uh, and 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 listener, uh, it, we do not have lisps. This, you, of course, you know, Doctor Seuss loves his weird sounds. This is Thneed, T H N, Thneedville. Um, have a, an irrational fear of truffle trees. So again, this is uh, about a generation removed from the Onceler's time. We don't really know how old he is. Maybe it's a couple of generations. Granny or Grammy, um, played by Betty White, knows of the Onceler, and that's who sends Ted off into this. So it's at least two generations, maybe, I, I suppose. But so the two generations of Thneedvillians Thneed uh, have irrational fear of truffle trees. They don't like them. And during the movie, we find out why, and it's because O'Hare specifically says to the residents of Thneedville that... Folks, <laughs> the last thing you want around here is trees. They're filthy, spewing that sticky, nasty sap all over the place. They bring poisonous ants and stinging bees. Ouch. Think about the kids. And... I just thought, you know, they, they make leaves. I did, You know that, right? And these leaves, they just fall. Huh? They just fall wherever they want. Oh, come on, we know why you're really against trees. Because they produce fresh air. For free. I am wounded. You have lied. It is not a lie. It's called photosynthesis. Come on, she's making that up. That's a made-up word, people. Sneedville is perfect just the way it is. And it's um it's an interesting quote because that's exactly what trees do in general, right? In real life. They have ants in them, bees make nests in them, wasps make nests in them, and they have sap and you know, some some trees, especially the ones that are around uh you and I, Kirsten, right? The deciduous trees drop their leaves every year. Yeah, it's a pain in the butt. But honestly, it's not the worst. There are worse things in the world. And of course, this misinformation snowballs and gets worse and people start talking about it. It's like, ugh, trees, truffle tree. Oh, so disgusting. And they all have this fear of, of real trees. And this brings us back to what you had mentioned about the disco tree <laughs> that they have at the beginning of the movie. And the reason why Ted finds out all of this about the truffle trees is because he doesn't buy into it. And Audrey, the girl that he uh, wants to get with, uh, played by Taylor Swift, wants to know more about real plants. But the whole town is just so frozen by <laughs> this weird shared phobia. Yeah, no, I think that's a great example of something that, well, as you mentioned, classical conditioning, we tend to see repeated pairing, right? So yeah. when we teach Pavlov's yeah. dogs, you've got to have multiple associations with that yeah. um, conditioned, which at one point is is a, a neutral stimulus, and then it becomes a conditioned stimulus mm -hmm. um, because it, it didn't make any you know, reaction, particularly to anyone at the same time before it was paired. But phobias, you're right, are that one very specific, I mean, fear in general, right? Yeah, it's that one, it only takes one instance. Um, you know, conditions taste aversion is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. Right. And actually, I think there is an example of that now that I'm thinking about it in the movie. Um, if you remember, there's a scene where, you know, our, our chubbier bear friend is eating lots and lots of butter um, and then gets sick. <laughs> that could be an example yes. of, you know, now I don't want any more butter, don't ever, want any more butter. Uh, ever again. But, oh, yeah, poor guy. I mean, the more I think about these scenes, the more psychology there is in them. Oh, yeah. You so mine, mine for gold. And on that mine for gold, 
we're going to move on to our rapid fire session because you had writ uh, written down a, a number of recurring concepts and connections. We've already gone over operant classical conditioning, of course. We've talked about social learning theory. We've talked about Kohlberg's theory of moral development. So what I want for this rapid fire, uh, if you're on board, Kirsten, and what I want for this rapid fire session is maybe like um, one scene where you uh, briefly explain what's going on in the scene and the idea that has been put forward that you or your students have put forward in each of these things that you wrote down. Are you ready? Okay. I am ready. All right. Sounds great. All right. So the first rapid fire I got for you, you mentioned it earlier. And so let's just put a pin in this motivation. Sure. So, of course, we know that there is intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, and we can think about different characters and the level of motivation that they display. Yeah. So the Lorax, which, of course, is the you know title character we haven't really discussed much, but he <laughs> obviously has an intrinsic motivation to speak for the trees, to make sure that um, the onceler, you know, understands the importance of trees. Mm -hmm. And of course, intrinsic is for the love of the activity or the thing itself. Yeah. And so the Lorax is a, is the epitome of loving the trees for their own sake. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the onceler, at least at the beginning, there kind of is a turning point, you know, at the very end there, but, um, the onceler and O'Hare are extrinsically motivated, which of course, you know, money is a great, extrinsic motivator yeah it is um and so i think that the movie does a really good job of sort of portraying in different characters the various types of mm -hmm. motivations that we can see yeah and i would also add just very briefly that the onesler also really wants to be admired by people um and that yeah. would that's also an extrinsic motivator as well okay next one development now we already talked about kohlberg's development how about Erickson's, Eric Erickson's uh, developmental stages? Sure. So my students often point out um, like industry versus inferiority with some of the early scenes with the Lunsler and his family members. Mm -hmm. um, and so like his mom especially is not really developing that sense of, you know, going off and doing something good. Like he really does feel inferior yeah. to um, his siblings there. Indeed. Um, she's not a very nice woman and no. only likes, only likes the onceler once he starts making a bunch of money, once mm -hmm. he's really successful. And that's, Ooh, that's not great parenting. All right. No. And then she pulls that away. Right. Because. Oh I yes. As soon as he. In my head saying, oh, Ted, you are not my favorite child. Like, yeah, we could even talk about parenting styles, but we won't. <laughs> All right. Next one intelligence yeah so uh, there's of course various uh, theories out there uh, robert sternberg has the triarchic theory mm -hmm. and so my students often point out sort of the difference between um, practical and creative intelligence mm -hmm. um, of course you know ted has a lot of ideas um, with again as i mentioned you know trying to escape the surveillance from o'hare and his uh, henchmen um, so how he escaped the walls, that's definitely displaying practical intelligence. Sure. Um, and then I think we would be remiss if we didn't point out that the Onceler himself, by creating the need um, in the first place, does display a high level of creative intelligence. I would I would agree with that. Uh, accidental creative intelligence, I'll, yeah. I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> OK, yeah. next one. Obedience. Yeah, I, I think there's quite a few here, but the one that I'll go with because it's a very strong theme is, you know, you've got these two great big guys and uh, O'Hare is a really tiny guy. Mm -hmm. um, really but tiny guy. they feel indebted to him. And so there are many scenes, again, we've talked about the slapstick comedy, but there are many scenes where, you know, they could easily just like literally send him, you know, to Timbuktu because of the size difference, but they are obeying because he has this presumed uh, position of authority, not to mention that all of the townspeople are also listening to his authority, at least until the end. Yeah. And uh, I will, I will add that the Lorax uh, tries to get the Onceler to obey him tries 
Anna ultimately yeah. fails. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Okay. And the last one I have for you, Kirsten, groupthink. Yeah, I think it's important to remember um, that when we're discussing groupthink, we tend to sort of think about it in a negative sense. And of course, it does have negative characteristics. Um, so all of the things that the townspeople are doing, you know, throughout the movie are great examples of the sort of unpleasant side of groupthink. Mm -hmm. But I want to point out the last scene um, where, you know, it's very dramatic and <laughs> they do finally recognize the importance of the truffle tree and the seed. Um, and they sort of really change their tune. Um, and you know, it's this cute little girl, I think her name is Marie and she starts singing and then there's this iconic, uh, song, let it grow. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to just point out that that's sort of the positive side that as much as, you know, thinking in the same way as people around you can, and often does lead to negative outcomes, it can lead to positive, um, outcomes, which in this case at the end it, it does. Yeah. Cause they all sort of band together and it's like, oh, we got to get those truffle trees growing again. Can we do it, team? And they're all like, yeah. So, of course, you, you end the movie on a high note there. So, I mean, that's a great idea. Hopefully they can do it. Maybe there'll be a Lorax, too. Maybe, maybe Theodore Geisel will rise from the dead and write Lorax, too. Because I'm a little worried that we are also going to cut down all of our truffle trees. <sighs> we might be heading there. Oh, yikes. Yikes, yikes, yikes. Well, I want to thank Dr. Kirsten Bachman for joining me to discuss the Lorax. Before we say goodbye, Kirsten, is there anything that you'd like to plug? Where, where can folks find out more about your work? Yeah, you know, Alex, you mentioned and I mentioned the uh, first class that I was teaching, Psychology of Learning. I have written a textbook. Um, it's called Psychology in Everyday Life. Um, nice. So if anyone is looking um, for, you know, learning, um, we really dive deep into mm -hmm. um, applications, examples. That book talks about a lot of examples of classical and operant conditioning. Um, I try to keep my personal website, which is on Weebly, mm -hmm. um, updated with, you know, my most recent um, current version of my CV. And I will link that for um, the listeners. But, yeah. Um, you know, I've been saying for years that I was going to write a book on my research area of intimate partner violence, and I might finally do that okay. this summer. So I guess keep an eye out for that. And, you know, we started by saying all these great things that my students are doing. And I think you said it well when your students brought uh, Saikai to Eureka. I just want to again congratulate my students at yeah. VCSU because they are leaving their mark. Um, and, you know, that's kind of poetic for how we're talking about the Lorax. Yeah. You know, like they, they left their mark with the Truffulous tree and the seed. Um, so, yeah, I just want to give a shout out to my students. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's a lovely way to send you off, Kirsten. We will chat again soon. I appreciate you being on the show once again. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to, um, you know, chat with you and chat film pedagogy, Alex. And I just want to leave your listeners with the words of the Lorax. Mm -hmm. unless. Um, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing's going to get better. It's not. And I hope those listeners recognize how much caring, no matter how small it might seem, really does go a long way in the lives of everyone else. Couldn't agree more. That's going to do it for this episode. Until the next one, thanks for listening. 